news, listeners. Welcome back to another episode of the show where I've clearly demonstrated that I am nuts because all we talk about is almonds. Today's guest drum roll, please. Wait, did you not read the caption before you clicked on this to listen? I mean, you already know, right? It's president and CEO of the Almond Alliance, Aubrey Bentoncourt. Aubrey, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to uh, talk with us and welcome to Nut News. Yeah, thanks so much, Alan. Glad to be here. I think it's still safe to consider you new. I mean, you've been in this post now for for several months, but you know, I figure uh, you know, let's just start with a, a quick introduction uh, of yourself, maybe uh, you know, some background and what you were doing before the Almond Alliance and uh, you know, maybe what drew you to take this post. Well, I thought this was where we all came if we were nuts. <laughs> well, the show certainly is. It certainly is. Yeah. So I'm a third, fourth generation, excuse me, fourth generation California farmer. Proud daughter of a, a farmer in uh, the Kings County area. Started off in row crops. My great-grandfather actually immigrated from Portugal. He was in dairy. My dad went out and worked in row crops, and we ended up buying back the family farm in the 1990s. And uh, now we do almonds and walnuts there, along with some custom harvesting and, and management for uh, others, which includes more almonds, pistachios, walnuts, tomatoes, and a number of other things. So I, I always tell folks I am a proud and unapologetic California farm girl. I'm blessed to have found a career early in my career, that being in service to my community, this rural community, this ag community that I'm in service to my country. And that's that's something that's always been very important to me, is this sense of service, this sense of community. And so my career has, has kind of, by government standards, by DC standards, by political standards, kind of a little bit backwards by my own standards. It's exactly the way it should be kind of reverse engineered. I started off with my own business doing consulting in the water space. And actually my background is in natural resource management, specifically water as pertains to agricultural needs and use. That's led me on an incredible journey, very diverse. I love being multilingual in a lot of different places. And so I was the executive director for the California Water Alliance for almost 10 years. It was a startup organization. By the time we left, we had offices in Southern California, Northern California. We'd run statewide ballot initiatives. And our mission really was to bridge the ag and urban divide and provide real straightforward accountability in the education around California's water use. I was very proud of the work that we did there and and kind of the footprint that that, that organization led. So that kind of gave me that organizational background and got me on, out in the field working with folks on the ground. And from there, I was uh, asked to serve as the state executive director for the Farm Service Agency in California. So that's administering all of the programs that we know and love, uh, having 32 offices, uh, county offices statewide, but administering all of those great programs on for disaster and for starting and keeping you farming is what I used to say. We, our job was to keep farmers farming at FSA. So we had programs for new and beginning farmers, existing farms. We had loan programs for investment, for disaster and more. And so we also were the disaster response agency for USDA during wildfire and flood and drought and freeze. But it really gave me insight into how these being on the program distribution side of an agency that has a direct contact and direct link to our farmers and how those programs and policies are developed and they critically need that representation from our industry on the ground to inform those programs to make them most effective to keep our farmers farming. From there, I was asked to serve as the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Water and Science at the Department of the Interior. And there I was working with the Bureau of Reclamation and the U.S. Geological Survey my time there was was really quite incredible. Now I was on the policy side. So 
at USDA, I was on the program administrative side. I was handed a program and told to administer it. And on the Department of Interior side, I was in the developing the policy that may you know, impact or develop and become a program. So I kind of reverse engineered it again. And in my time working with the Bureau of Reclamation, we were working all things Western water, including the Central Valley Project, the Klamath, the Colorado River, the Columbia River, anything west of the Mississippi River, we were handling it. And we were wielding water for irrigation, for rural and urban communities, as well as for environmental protection. And then working with the U.S. Geological Survey, which is the, the earth sciences, really got into water quality issues all over the country and was able to work in projects in Florida and projects on the Mississippi and up in the Great Lakes. And it was a really unique time to be there because we also were involved in, and I was I served as the de facto executive director within government for what was called the Water Subcabinet. It was actually formally called the Water Policy Coordination Committee, and it consisted of the Department of Interior, the EPA, Department of Ag, so USDA, Department of Commerce, Army Corps of Engineers, and the Department of Energy. These are the six divisions of federal government that have jurisdiction in the water space. And our job was to bring them into alignment, to expand government, to, but to bring them into alignment around common and set priority set around water for the United States of America. And that included serving on farm, so that information for NRCS delivered right there on your farm, all the way up to macro infrastructure with the Army Corps and with Bureau of Reclamation. And I joke around that I became conversational in the language of all of those departments when it came around to water, but it always comes back to kind of that ag space. And so when my time there was served, I finished my service, was consulting again as the director of sustainability for the California Cattle Council, the Western United Dairies here in California, working with them specifically to set up their technical services and their Sigma services program, really looking at how do we, again, keep industry and keep farmers farming as we transition through big changes in our water supply and water policies. And then I got a phone call, said, hey, uh, the Almond Alliance is looking to pick up a new CEO. Their present CEO had received a, a great opportunity to serve in the federal government. It was an organization I had known when I was at USDA and I had respected and had the pleasure of getting to know a little bit more through that interview process and was really, again, just blessed to be able to have the opportunity to, again, be in service of my community, my farmers, my almond farmers, my haulers, my processors, get to know a new aspect of California ag, which, again, I love being a champion of anywhere I go, and to, again, work to keep farmers farming get water to people who need it and protect the resources that protect us. So really excited to be here. It's a challenging time, but this is an incredible organization to be a part of. Dynamic, progressive, and very sophisticated, much like the people that it serves. I think the almond community is probably the most sophisticated community within the agricultural world. It's been just a complete joy and honor to serve alongside this incredible community. We thank you for that. Those that are most familiar with uh, what the Almond Alliance does and, and their influence in the industry, I'm sure appreciate that insight because it's it's good to know you know what your leader's background. I think there's a, a lot of confidence in uh, your ability to to leverage that background. I do think there's a, a subset of our uh, listeners that might not know exactly what the Almond Alliance does, or you know, curious you know exactly uh, the role that they play. So, you know, if you will, um, broad strokes, could you? paint the the mission of the almond alliance and you know what what role you play in the almond industry yeah absolutely so 
the almond community, I joke around, we're the, we're the Almond Alliance of California, but if you're eating trail mix in Minnesota, you're you're mine. If you're making a, a nut mixture in Tennessee, you're a member of mine too, because you're using the product that we grow here in California. When you consider that 80% of the world's production comes from California, 90% of the United States supply comes from California. We have a big, broad, diverse community that we look out for. And I love the dominance of this amazing niche industry of 7,600 growers that has this incredible global footprint. So you have in in the almond world, you know, how do you keep that industry doing what it does? Well, one is market development and research and development on that side. That's really your federal marketing order. So that would be the the almond board of California that's that's operated through USDA with an elected board of directors of members from the community and financed through a checkoff. So if you're listening to this and you're part of the almond community, you know there's that little three cent per pound deduction that goes to the almond board. That's separate. That's the sanctioned development of global market through USDA, incredible organization. We are the voluntary membership-based trade association for the almond industry. Our job is to be a voice of advocacy and influence in the political policy and regulatory realm that affects our industry from ground all the way up to consumer. So our job is to be more that attack dog, to weigh in and take positions on policies, to say what works for us, what doesn't advocate for the resources that we need and the policy and political and regulatory environment that we need to continue to develop and grow and innovate and deliver safe and reliable products throughout the world. So policy, politics, regulatory, that space. Can you give us some examples of like what that actually means from a practical standpoint? And, you know, I, I know you've been there for a short time, so maybe something that was prior to your tenure, I'm not sure. But, you know, from a practical standpoint, like on the ground as a grower, what does that actually mean? Yeah, I mean, I think what it is is someone has to someone has to be in the room to say, here's what almonds need when decision makers are making decisions in Sacramento and in Washington. That's what the Almond Alliance does. A good example of that, and actually the funny thing was, is I was at the USDA side of this when this was happening, and the Almond Alliance was one of my key partners. But a good example is the market facilitation program, which then became the CFAP program through USDA. Prior to that point, almonds had never been considered in a, an assistance program like that because it was a specialty crop. There's very limited programming available for what's considered a luxury product like almonds. But during the various trade imbalances and, and uh, tariff wars that had been going on that then rolled into COVID response and other things, the Almond Alliance became an advocate and contacted the USDA immediately, contacted appropriate members of Congress and other decision makers and influencers as that program was being developed and worked through with policymakers what it was that the almond industry needed, what would be the easiest way to calculate and to sign up and to facilitate and what would be a fair market value or a fair price point or calculation of of the payments and to make sure that the policy worked in a way and that almonds were included. And uh, when that program first rolled out. It was a big deal. Almonds were in and there were some others that were left out. So it's a great example of how an organization like the Almond Alliance, it's their job to be in our job to be critically positioned as a voice of influence and advocacy on all things that affect our industry and our community. Well, I'm sure there's also some behind the scenes wins, right? I mean, just because something doesn't come to fruition doesn't mean that uh, you weren't uh, an advocate. In fact, that might be the the appropriate outcome if you're, you know, looking to advocate for for almonds. So, is uh, anything kind of come to mind that uh, you know maybe doesn't have the glitz and glamour, but uh, certainly would have an impact uh, on the almond industry that you've uh, worked on recently? 
what are the things that don't happen? Sometimes a win is stopping something from happening or preventing something from going too far. Protecting different inputs or practices for our organization and for our community. A, a good example right now that we're, we're working through is we're working with Department of Pesticide Regulation to really inform them on what are key practices with around fumigation and opportunities to allow us to continue to use some of these critical components that allow us to continue to produce safe and affordable almonds uh, and keep our environment that we need, the growing environment that we need, viable for us, protect various practices. Now, we may need to change a cultural practice around that, but it's important that we're in this process with them to work through that, informing them of how we do things, not just the science behind it, but also the different practices and what are the sciences behind the practices. So sometimes it's, um, it is that block and tackle that allows us to, to continue to do what we do. You know, that, that brings up an interesting point. Uh, actually, a couple things. Uh, you know, I don't want to dive in too deep on this, but, you know, I, I come from a, a younger, you know, the millennial cohort. I've also done a lot of sustainability stuff here. And when you hear the words of, you know, lobbying, I guess, if you will, for maybe a special interest or you hear, you know, political dark money, right? I mean, you kind of get this negative, there seems to be anyways, a negative impact in some of the, you know, behind the scenes conversations that happen within government and the outcomes that happen there, you know, and if we're looking at it from a sustainability angle, you know, hey, if we're trying to run interference to keep a particular pesticide or fumigant, you know, in the rotation in the handbag, you know, how, how does that drive from a sustainability standpoint? And I'm rambling a little bit. I guess what I'm really getting at here is how do we balance that? And maybe has there been political backlash in conversations or things that you've you've worked with? Or, you know, how, how do you interface with the general population to keep them informed that, you know, the advocacy that we're doing really does have broad benefit and it's not just geared towards, you know, one little niche product in our own interest. Sure. I, I think uh, you're absolutely right. And I'm considered an older millennial. So I, I totally understand it, too. We're coming into an era and we are being totally responsive to these calls for transparency and accountability in our value chain and in our supply chain development, production chain, around the practices that we use. And that's being driven by our food companies that, that we provide wholesale product to or whole product to, but it's also being driven by our customer and our consumer. I love it. I think we should have, you know, for those who care enough to know, they can have uh, more and more, they're having ways to engage and, and learn about what it is we do. I mean, we're, we're down to 1.5% of the population feeds 98.5% of the population. We have really lost the relationship with our consumer in a lot of ways. But when it comes to how we as an advocacy organization and how we're communicating out, I mean, part of what we're doing is leaning in. We can be part of the problem or part of the solution. We prefer to be part of the solution. And so we want to lean in as experts in our field. If you're out there growing almonds in California, I guarantee you we're growing them better than anyone else in the world for multiple reasons. One is we have basically defined this industry historically. And two, we happen to operate in one of the most regulated environments in you know operating and farming environments in the world. And we are doing so for a global audience. So we're accommodating other highly regulated or high standard regions or buyers. Uh, you know, Europe is notorious. Uh, and the EU has a lot of standards that are defining the way that products we use and cultural practices that we deploy. So it is critical for us to be involved in the development and the conversation around where we're going to meet the demands of our consumer and our and our customer and to inform that process with sound science with accountability and 
and to be a part of that conversation because we are the experts in how to grow almonds and how to produce them and process them. And so we could let that happen to us or we can be involved in the process. And as the experts in the field, I'm really excited to be a part of a a community and an industry and an organization that that is something that we at the Almond Alliance, we lean in on solution. We don't let things come at us and have to be reactive. We want to be a part of the solution. So if if it's a conversation around land management or habitat development for pollinators or water use, which is my background, and looking at water use efficiency. These are the conversations that we want to make sure our experts are in the room helping to clearly identify what is the goal and hopefully identify what is an achievable goal. And then what are the technical, financial, or regulatory resources that we need and environments that we need as an industry to achieve that goal? I'm a firm believer that the era of sustainability that we're entering into and have been but are driving towards with this incredible priority set in our world around taking care of our natural resources that take care of us, that the farmer is a part of that solution, that we will not achieve the goals that we are setting out for ourselves without working with the men and women who know how to work the land, who know these resources daily better than most. We always talk about the ag-urban divide in the world. It is imperative for agriculture, for the almond community to be in the room saying, we want to be part of the solution. Here's what we can and cannot do. Here's how we can do it. Here's what are the barriers to entry for us to be able to achieve these goals. Whether we're talking about if it's something data management, all the way down to what kind of technologies do we need or studies do we need to really understand water reuse as applies to agricultural product and agricultural development. So we lean in and I'm a tech geek on top of it all. So it's that integration of all of it. And I love seeing our industry be a leader in that space. So let's kind of talk a little bit more current or forward looking. You know, the industry, I I think we're dealing with two kind of headaches front and center, that being, you know, the logistics um, issues that we've just been facing, supply chains have, have been gnarled for way longer than anyone would ever want. And then water, of course, is uh, is the other one here, California being in the midst of, uh, you know, another year of droughts and limited water supplies. So, uh, you know, I'm wondering what, if anything, uh, the Almond Alliance and yourself are looking to do to or implement or to influence to try to alleviate uh, some of those headaches that we as, um, you know, almond growers and handlers are facing. So, you know, there was two there. Let's, let's start with, with logistics, if we can. What are your thoughts and what are you doing there on the logistics issues? Yeah, so you're really hitting on it. You know, we we as an organization looked at everything we could be working on, and it came out to like six pages, single spaced of bullet points, right? Yep. <laughs> I remember we sat down and I said, look, I think we need to, you know, we could be doing all of this poorly, or we could do a couple things really well. We need to set priorities for ourselves. And where we came down to for our industry at this critical moment of incredible change and evolution, I think, not just for almonds, I think across the board for all agriculture, but almonds especially, you know, we came down to a reliable water supply and a functioning supply chain. If we don't have those two things, the rest almost doesn't matter. doesn't mean it's not important. doesn't mean we're not working on it, but plant health and carbon and all of that, these are, if I had my 
top six priorities. Those I just mentioned four of them and that we're focused on. But uh, really, those top, the supreme two are water supply and, and functioning supply chain. On the supply chain side, you know, it's been fascinating to step in on that when I started with this position in particular, especially because, you know, Almond Alliance historically was the hullers, shellers organization. So really working with handlers and understanding the logistics of what was going on. What's been so disappointing over the course of time has been this amazing amount of attention from our policy leaders at the state and federal level, but it's been very much a, a band-aid on bullet holes mentality. And when we look at the numbers for almonds, we don't have that luxury anymore. We don't. We never had that luxury anymore. And it doesn't mean that some of those, what I would call symptoms of supply chain dysfunction aren't important, but that's not the root thing we need to be after as as an industry for us. What, what my industry is telling me, what my members are telling me is, look, if you can make a boat provide containers and equipment and take product, we will figure out port congestion, truck weights, box rules, detention and demurrage fines. We will figure out the rest if we can just have ships take product. And so that's where we've stayed focused. We're involved. In fact, just before this conversation, I literally was on the phone with... Secretary's office at CDFA. We are involved at very high levels, both at the federal administration, congressional level, state administration, state legislature, working through what is it they, you know, making sure they know what it is we need and are asking for and codifying those asks, working with our other strategic partners from across the country. And I don't want to underestimate, you know, underplay that. I mean, it is so important for, even though I'm this proud Californian with this amazing California industry, it is critically important for us to have strategic partners partnerships across the United States. Why? Because there's 100 senators from 49 other states, and they make decisions on things like the Ocean Shipping Reform Act. And I can't pass a bill through Congress with just the California delegation. So it's critical that we have these strategic partnerships. So we're working with them as well, not only to help everything from on-ground logistics, where we're taking phone calls, trying to help people just find 40-acre lots where they can set up a pop-up and use it as an empty yard or use it as a staging zone near one of our critical ports at LA Long Beach or Oakland. We're in negotiations uh, looking at pilot projects at the Port of Stockton. What would they need to become a more viable space for us? Even if they aren't being used to to export, could we use them as an inland port? Modernizing our infrastructure in that regard, partnering with our folks in logistics and transportation to look for those other opportunities, but all the way up to high-level conversations around what we need from a leadership standpoint to get us to solution. This is getting to be critical, not getting to be, it is critical. Last year, we floated. The 2020 crop was long. 2021, we were going into that. that we saw the kind of slowdown of, of exports started right around February, March of last year, but our, our handlers and our processors, they were, they looked at it and said, Hey, we got paid for 2020. So we'll go ahead and do pool payments for 21. We're seeing it slow down, but it'll ship. And then it slowed down more and it slowed down more and it slowed down more. And the price for, you know, the bounty on empties went up and up and up. And so we started seeing equipment shortages and now we have the 2021 crop backed up as we head into the 2022 season. I can't understate the critical nature of where we're at. We're, we need to move 1.3 million pounds of almonds in the next three months, and we need 34,000 empty containers to do that. And that's really hard when you find out that the Port of Oakland is letting 35,000, 36,000 empty containers leave every month. 
You know, I asked when I first started, is this an economic problem or a political problem? I'm confident that, you know, if California has a 52 to $58 billion ag economy that's unprocessed goods, if we wanted to stage a load and offer a premium to make someone take something, we would. That hasn't happened, which tells me it doesn't work, which tells me this isn't a straight up economic problem. We are to the point where we need serious leadership to step in here and help us get equipment available, have containers available and have boats hold their contracts and take our product overseas to the buyers that have already purchased our product. I'm very worried about the trickle down effect into our growers as a grower myself. And I come from a grower mentality. The cash flow didn't happen from last year's crop because product wasn't delivered. I'm not saying anything anyone listening to this doesn't know, but that has a, a critical effect on my, my farmers this year as pool payments are reduced to the lowest they've ever been in history. In some cases, I'm hearing, you know, some haulers and shellers may not even finish out pool payments for the year as we're heading into the 2022 season and what is now about to be the most expensive year of farming at water at $2,000 an acre foot and at fertilizer inputs uh, being almost unavailable because we have a, a war breakout in one of the largest regions that produces fertilizer for the world. So it's a critical time. And, and the message I'm giving you is a message I'm giving the highest levels. And we are going to continue to push and get loud. And with that, we we tell that story to the media. It's a multifaceted approach. We play the public angle. We play the, the behind closed doors angle. And we communicate out to our members and give them action items that they can do to support us through this process as we put on the full court press, because it's time to bust through this at this point. It's uh, I think we're to the point where we've been patient enough. We've hit critical mass. It's time to get very loud about what we need to keep our industry and our community viable. So I want to dig in just a little bit because on the point of the economic versus, you know, a policy or regulatory um, component, because, you know, again, from from a lay person's perspective, you know, you might just kind of say, sit here and say, well, it's, you know, it's out to the highest bidder. So if they're shipping you know, empty containers, that's because someone's paying a premium for those empty containers to go back. We all know about, you know, the consumption economy that we have here and the high demand that uh, that we're spurring for those, um, you know, consumer goods. And we also know that, you know, we're at a point where we as, at least in the, the almond industry, we, we really can't afford to sell, you know, our almonds at lower prices. I mean, we're already lucky kind of to be breaking even at this particular price point. So your assertion here that it's a policy and regulatory piece versus an, an economic piece, I don't know, I just, I question it a bit. So I wonder if you can, you know, give us, you know, one or two quick little policy or regulatory pieces that you do feel are playing an impact that are things that, that you would work on that you would expect to help alleviate the problem, you know, if not entirely, just a little bit. Yeah, okay, maybe you caught me at being a little overly simplified, but at the same time, when a foreign entity is allowed to break contract with us and there's no recourse, that's not that's not an economic problem. <laughs> when a boat shows up and says, yeah, I'll take your product and I'll be here for four days, and then they call and say, oh, no, it's four hours, to me, that's a breach of contract. And when there's no recourse for that, we have a political problem. When we took that to the federal government, we were told they don't have the authority legally to step in and do anything. Well, what does that mean? We need to create the authority. This is where lawyers smarter than me step in and find solutions. Even if it is an economic issue as well, what is the incentive? If it's purely economic, then what wouldn't we do to bust the logjam on this, right? And, and you bring up the point, which is, but it has to be affordable for us, right? 
has to somehow keep us viable economically as well. And, and when you consider the price degradation from September of last year to this year to present, you know, we've lost picking the median a buck a pound from September to February in the midst of every other commodity getting, you know, record rates, uh, you know, through inflation and other things. So, you know, these are uh, kind of a combination of all points. So I would say, you know, in the min- in the meantime, those are the some of the, I kind of touched on some of the things that we can work on. One is, you know, I mentioned the Ocean Shipping Reform Act. That is a piece of legislation that just unanimously passed the Senate. It has passed the House. It's going to conference. It addresses a number of issues to provide the authority to the federal government, Federal Maritime Commission, to step in as a, not just as a, under their current authorities there, basically a a dispute resolution authority, and arms them with more regulatory authority to be able to step in on unfair practices, contract violations, detention and demurrage. I would love to see box rules be put in there. That racket is something else, right? When we've got plenty of empties sitting in Oakland, but we can't move them to make them available because we have the wrong chassis on the truck. And it's not that they're mechanically incapable. It's because contractually, you can only use certain chassis with certain boxes when picking up from certain ships. We have allowed this to kind of run away from us a little bit on some of these these items. Same thing with, you know, when you look at some of the inefficiencies around the trucking side, right? We've got, uh, you know, 80, what it's an estimate of 88,000 were short truckers, 80,000 truck drivers nationwide. You look at then what the just unnecessary kind of congestion that gets caused by variable gross vehicle truck weights across the United States. So, you know, trucks coming in from the Pacific Northwest where they have a higher standard of, I think, 150, 150,000. And they get to California and it's only 88,000 pounds. So you're breaking one truck into two. I'm not sure what that's doing for your greenhouse gas emissions, <laughs> but uh, I can guess. Those are things that I'd like to see addressed too. And and maybe if a, a result of this crisis is that we address some of these pinch points through our supply chain, I am all for that. Trust me, reimagining our supply chain infrastructure to make it more efficient to meet our modern needs. If we've seen this 20% increase in demand for foreign product and it has not diminished, we desperately need to upgrade our infrastructure to take into consideration to be able to handle this level of demand, but also to, I think, give us There's nothing wrong with being proud of our American farmers, our American businesses, our American products and the place that they play in the world and the footprint that we have in the world. And so we should be investing in facilitating that and facilitating our success both nationally and globally from a hard infrastructure standpoint all the way up to the policy standpoint. And that's really where I come in on this. It's a, you know, the political question here. Are we going to continue to allow our economic footprint, our role, our position as a trade partner in the world to diminish, to disintegrate, to disappear, the longer we don't put our product on shelves worldwide. Because someone will replace almonds with potato chips if we don't put product back on that shelf. And that weakens our position in the world. So let's move to water. That's the other uh, big uh, concern here uh, recently at the uh, almond industry. So uh, what is the Almond Alliance doing to help on on that front? I think the biggest thing we can do on water is be a resource. It's a highly complicated space. Everybody knows it has incredible impact on agriculture and land use and economic activity and environmental uh, activity in California. You know, I always tell people that's the first thing a farmer makes a decision on is based on how much water do I have. That determines what they're going to grow, where they're going to grow it, how they're going to grow it, how much, 
and when. It starts with that first question in California. Well, does it have water on it and how much? So the first thing we can do, I think, as an industry uh, trade association is to provide expertise both to our membership and to the industry in general, keeping them abreast of what some of these announcements and decisions mean. How does that translate? Where are the resources available to our growers on the ground to help them invest or to help them find drought or disaster assistance? So it's utilizing existing resources, being a conduit for information in that space. And the second part of that is, again, back to being in that position of influence. A lot of large water policy decisions have been announced just as recently as this week, where we have water districts that have our growers and our members and our processors and haulers and shippers and handlers as members of these water districts. And it, I think it's important to to recognize and what I've instructed our team on is, you know, the Almond Alliance represents the men and women on the ground who work and live and produce inside of these water districts. We don't represent the water districts. And so it's our job to be in a position of influence with the water community, with the state and federal decision makers in this space to provide good information to provide technical expertise, both around policy and data and statistics and needs, and to be an advocate for what we need within these spaces from a water standpoint to uh, keep our industry viable. And that then translates to the things we go after, right? At that point, you identify what it is you need. Right now, when you're in a drought, there's a couple of things. When you're in a drought, the only thing you can do is survive it. And so first and foremost, it's maximizing resources and going and getting more to keep our our growers viable when and where they can, whether that's helping find wet water, if we can, supporting flexibility in water transfers, supporting flexibility in uh, groundwater banking and recharge. And the second thing is to be an advocate within the policy space around how to get out of a drought. This is the second part of a drought. You have to be, as a water manager, planning for recovery. What happens when it rains should be the question every water manager wakes up with every morning when you're in a drought scenario. And you have to make sure that you are physically ready for when that happens and legally ready. There's a lot of uh, legal roadblocks that prevent us from maximizing our water supply or recovering our water supply. And so it's important that we make sure that we're utilizing transparent and sound science to inform those processes and make sure that we have the red tape out of the way or green light and aligned in a way that allows us to maximize our resources for recovery. And that's not just for agriculture. That's for all the needs that our system provides for, which is the second rule of California water is 50-40-10. 50% of developed waters for environmental protection, 40% is for agriculture, and 10% is for uh, municipal and industrial. And as we've seen this week, agriculture has... Uh, coming off of two years of zero or five or 10% allocation on surface water and pending groundwater restrictions, there's nothing else you can take out of the agricultural portion of this. Our reservoirs will near Deadpool. This will have incredible impacts, not only for our environment, but also for our municipalities, not just for delivering them fresh, clean drinking water, but also for the grid. We actually still use hydropower in the United States and in California. And if you're below the mechanism by which to pick up water, that affects our power system heading into a hot summer. Right now, it's about what are the resources we need to survive and what are the plans to help us recover. Wherever the almond industry can be involved in informing that process, that's where we are. So, Aubrey, I really appreciate you taking the time to sit down with us uh, to dive into some detail. I mean, at least for me, I, I learned a lot uh, and have you know supreme confidence now in what the Almond Alliance uh, is doing and, and helping, and have all the confidence in the world of you yourself as, as a leader. So, appreciate that. You know, and I feel uh, you know some of our listeners out there might be interested in 
getting in touch, uh, lending a hand or understanding how they might be able to play a role. So uh, if we have someone out there interested in that, uh, how do they get in touch with you? How do they how do they involved? Well, first of all, thank you for the opportunity to not only talk about the Almond Alliance and its role in looking out for all of us out there who just want to farm, who just want to deliver great and delicious products to the world, but also to have a chance to talk about some of the issues we're tackling. You know, it's a complicated space, and that really is our job, is to help us as an industry define what our future should look like and help go get it. And so it really is about the members. It's really about you as a community, uh, being a part of our community. So visit almondalliance.org. Always know you can you can go there to learn more about the organization. You can go there to find out what we're working on. We actually are very communicative. We're on social media platforms as well, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. In addition to that, you know, if you're interested, please do take a look at joining our organization. We provide industry alerts and resources, tremendous resources to the industry to help navigate things as simple as HR work. We have a, a fantastic legal program that allows provides assistance there, but all the way up to just understanding these issues more. And my team is here to serve our community and answer those questions, help them navigate everything from, I still take calls about how to get, you know, applications through FSA offices and, and love doing that to keep everybody together. So I would really encourage folks to really look into the membership. This is a member-based organization. It's voluntary. So I always tell folks, if you don't like what we're doing, you can vote with your checkbook and, and you should, because our job is to represent this community and what it needs to continue to be this tremendous and dynamic and diverse community providing this amazing and wonderful protein to the world. So almondalliance.org, have no hesitation in reaching out to our office. We love providing service. Again, this is a member-based organization. It really is all about the members. Well, and I uh, second that emotion. And, uh, you know, if you're just looking to test the waters a little bit, I will also agree that your social media uh, outlets are great. The resources and articles that you share there have been a, uh, a great resource for me uh, for educational purposes and uh, often inspiration as well. So thank you for, for the service. Uh, and thanks again for joining us here on the Nut News Podcast. Awesome. Looking forward to another time, hopefully. Take care. Well, listeners out there, the Nut News podcast is and always is sponsored by SelectHarvestAlmondSnacks.com because that's us. And that's also where you can go and pick up wonderful, delicious almonds and have them delivered direct to your door, regardless of where you live as long as it's in the United States, because we don't ship internationally. We got some new stuff. Go check it out. Almond Shakers is our new innovation. Shake it on your steaks or your fish or your salads, whatever you want. Shake a little fun on it. Almond Shakers. And until next time, listeners, this is Nut News. Nut News.